let's try this again. Good morning, everybody. This time we're actually live. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, so, hey, we like to mix things up a little bit. We have to do different things sometimes. And sometimes technology can be great. But sometimes you're Amish and you have technical difficulties. <laughs> so that's my excuse today. That's my story. Hey, I'm sticking Saturday. to Saturday. Yep. Happy Saturday. Hope all is good. Uh, we did have a lot of viewers who had asked about the testing versus grooming. So we were going to try to define that better. And poor Jimmy had already like explained a lot of this. So I apologize. I'm so sorry. But would you would you mind um, beginning again and sure. explaining this? Yeah. So uh, I prefer the term testing over grooming because I think that's a more accurate descriptor of what's happening. So, um, and this first started when I was uh, writing back and forth between my father and I, uh, him being in prison and just describing some of the things that he was doing. And, and I had read mountains of books on sexual abuse and, and they all talk about grooming. And it's like this long process it could take you know months or even years to groom people into into thinking that you're a trustworthy person and what's that did you say something no oh i'm hearing voices <laughs> <laughs> so you know when you when you hear about grooming it's always like this really drawn out process and people are grooming you into believing that they're trustworthy and you know, it, it's like they're grooming a whole community into believing that they're trustworthy. And I was like, this doesn't describe my dad or I mean, any other abuser that I know. That they're trustworthy. You know, they, uh, they're trustworthy because, because people already trust them. People know them. When you walk into a doctor's office, they don't have to groom their patients into, uh, into believing they're trustworthy. You trust them because they're a doctor, because they have a degree. They have a position. Um, a pastor, you know, uh, you don't. You don't have pastors grooming a community for months or years at a time to believe that they're trustworthy. You trust them because they're a pastor, because they have a position, um, because they're nice, they're kind, they're funny. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I went back and I, I was kind of thinking through this, and I'm not the only one who talks about testing, um, but I'm probably the most vocal about it. Uh, so grooming means to get into readiness, and I'm reading straight from Merriam-Webster. Um, the dictionary describes it as getting into readiness for a specific objective to prepare. Um, anytime that you find the word groom appear in the dictionary, in any dictionary, um, it's always in a positive sense. So you're grooming an animal, um, getting an animal ready for, for a show. You know, you're combing its hair, you're giving it a bath, you're cleaning it up, um, trimming the hooves, whatever. Uh, same with children, you know, when you groom a child, in every dictionary, it's always used in a positive sense. Um, you're combing their hair, brushing their teeth, getting them dressed, making them presentable um, to go out the door. That's not what abusers do. Um, they don't make their victims any better, right? Um, and so, you know, something that really stuck out was, in my mind was something that my dad had told me. And he said, I can walk into any room and within 30 seconds, I know who every potential victim is. 30 seconds. Um, and I was like, okay, I, I'm listening. Um, so then he started describing how he would uh, produce his victims. He didn't groom any of them. Um, 
he wasn't handing out candy. He wasn't, you know, trying to get kids to trust him. They already did trust him. Their parents already trusted him. Um, so what he was doing is he would test them. And to test means to make a preliminary test or survey as of a, <clears throat> excuse me, a reaction or interest before embarking on a course of action. So think in terms of a magician, right? Magicians don't groom their audience over a course of months or even years. Um, within a one hour time frame, they've just pulled every trick in the book known to man um, and, and completely fooled an entire audience full of people. Um, and also, you know, magicians pull people up on stage and they're very selective in who they who they pull on stage. It's not like they just pick random people out of the crowd. Um, they walk into the audience. If you ever watch a magician show, they'll walk into the audience and they'll physically touch people. To us, it looks benign. If you don't know um, what they're doing, you think they're just being friendly, you know, just a quick tap on the shoulder. Um, that tells them everything. So, you know, uh, one of the best videos, and this is one that I use in trainings and I point people to, it's Apollo Robbins. Um, a P I think it's a P P O L L O Apollo Robbins R O B B I N S. Uh, he did a TEDx talk and he's known as the world's best, um, pickpocket. Incidentally, he's a pastor's son, um, but he's highly entertaining. It's an eight minute video. And in that video, he, he selects, he hand selects an audience member. And you watch him walk in the audience, and I always have my uh, my audience analyze what he's doing because he rejects the first two people. And he only has a 15-second interaction with each of them. And then the third guy, um, another 15 seconds, he's like, come on up, Joe. So I always stop it, and I'm like, okay, why did he pick Joe, and why did he not select the first two? He had 15-second interaction with all three of them. How did he know that Joe was the right one to pull on stage? He instinctively their, knew it. Their body language. Exactly right. No, I can't. Right. Magicians yeah. don't select me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I, yeah. Like, I've yeah. went to a magic show. I've went through this, right. and like they don't select me. That's right. Yeah, and I would not be one that they would select. Um, more than likely, Audrey wouldn't be one that they select. And actually, probably the majority of abuse survivors wouldn't be ones that they that they select. Why? Um, because your intuition is really tuned in. Um, you can smell bull crap a mile away, right? Um, usually, not always, it's not a fail safe method, but, yeah. but usually, you know, you're suspicious of people who touch you. Well, without consent, and without, right. like any kind of right. like, it's like, oh, can I give you a hug? No. That is a whole different thing than yeah. somebody just coming up and like touching you on the shoulder. Like, no, right. no. And then another thing is, is, and I don't know if Audrey's ever experienced this, but a lot of abuse survivors that I personally know, um, when, when somebody makes, because your intuition is right there, but also because like literally your brain got reprogrammed. When you see somebody doing some of those things that are just like danger, you get yeah. like you get like an upset stomach. Yep. You get your your skin crawls on the back of mm -hmm. your neck. Like you have this like icky feeling, mm -hmm. and you can't. You might not even be able to put a finger on it. Like what's the problem? So when you feel that and you you know that, mm -hmm. even though you don't know what it is, listen to it. Yeah, 
But you know, the other thing too, and this is kind of fascinating because you because you watch it in that clip with uh, with Apollo Robbins. I don't think that the first two people even knew that they were doing it. It's not like it was this, you know, they slap his hand away and they're like, "What are you doing, man?" It was just this um, this physiological response that both of them had. One was a male, one was a female. Um, the first one he went to was a, was a female, and he walked up and and he shook her hand, and then he tapped her on the shoulder and she, she like backed up just a little bit. Uh, and and he you know said a couple things kind of sped through them and then he was like okay thank you ma'am and then he goes to the next one and, and he goes to stick his hand out to shake the guy's hand and the guy gives about it's like probably not even a full second it's just a, a enough of an awkward hesitation that the guy didn't comply um, <laughs> you know and then he shakes his hand and the guy and, and apollo was like hey can you stand up right where you're at well, he didn't ask the lady to stand up. Why did he ask the guy to stand up? It was another series of tests because he was like, okay, he hesitated. Am I reading him right? I'll give him another command. Can you go ahead and stand up where you're at? And the guy doesn't do it. Um, and then after, you know, about two seconds, the guy like very reluctantly stands up and you can almost hear him go, <sighs> you know, like he's peeved off. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, then he moves on to Joe and goes to stick his hand out and Joe like leans forward. Like he's excited to meet him, you know? Right. He uh -huh. literally, his body leaned into to that uh, interaction. So it's this testing and um, abusers know how to do it and, and they know how to read people. So my dad talked about the importance of testing, not only his victims, but also matching them to the right parents. Um, because it's one thing to say, oh, well, you know, children are vulnerable and, and, you know, you could hand select a child and you could quote unquote groom that child and, you know, and then groom the parents and you know over this course of a year you're grooming the parents too i mean abusers not that patient no um, they're not going to do that they're not they're, they can literally meet you at church and abuse you in the in the outhouse like literally sure. or in the bathroom we used outhouses yeah. but in the bathroom like sure. or you know in a secluded area like literally the same day yeah so the question is, you know, how do they do it? And, it, you know, it's it's a series of, at first, they're benign um, sorts of testing. So it's a touch on the shoulder, uh, certain comments, like, you look beautiful. Well, if a parent doesn't resist that, if a parent isn't like, what did you just say to my kid? You know, um, they test those boundaries and they do it really quick. And it, and it seems like they're benign. Um, and some parents will say, what did you just say about my child? Well, guess what? That child's most likely not going to get abused because mom and dad are on hyper alert and mom and dad are very confrontational. Um, so, you know, once, once it starts with the hand on the shoulder, then it progresses really quickly. And my dad described this and he said, you know, he would slide fingers down over, over the breast area. Um, and it was, it was still benign enough that if a, if a parent questioned it, he'd be like, Oh my goodness. Like, Honestly, I just, I rested my hand. I put my hand on the shoulder and I didn't realize my fingers were, you know, um, going across the breast. Um, right. And then from there, it just progresses. But 99% um, of the time, he didn't have parents call him out. So, you know, um, people failed the test and my dad passed, you know, and then it just progressed. And he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt with every single one of his victims that not only would that child not tell, um, but their parents wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't be any, any of the wiser. Uh, they wouldn't know that he was abusing the child. And if, if they did ever suspect it, he also knew that he'd be able to talk his way out of it. Well, how did he know that with such confidence? Because he had tested them. Um, you know, he did things like, uh, do you remember the, 
Oh, what was the the lady's name in Florida? Um, Kaylee Anthony, um, who her kid, you know, her kid was murdered and and went missing, and they found like blood in the trunk of her car. Um, my dad, that case was like really hot right before my dad got arrested, and he would talk to parents about that, and be like, you know, what do you think? Do you think the dad? Do you think the dad really um sexually abused the kid and and then murdered the kid to hide the tracks? And the, the dad, the dad of the victims my dad was charged on told me about this. And I was like, he did what now? He's like, oh, yeah. He was like obsessed with that case. And he said he had me to the point where I was so conflicted inside of myself that I finally got mad at your dad. He was telling me this. He said, I got mad at your dad. And I was like, John, there's no way that this man in a million years, there's no way that this man sexually abused his kid or is even capable of that. Well, that's all my dad needed to know. If my dad ever got caught, this dad of, of my dad's actual victims would defend him uh, hook, line, and sinker. My dad knew that. He was playing games with him the whole time. So that's what I talk about when I talk about testing. That's not grooming. Uh, that's testing behavior. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it's really important to be aware as parents, if somebody is like, you know, if you just met somebody and they're trying to like, or even people that you know, because most um, child sexual assault is by somebody that the parents know and trust, and they invite them into the home, mm -hmm. all kinds of things. Be aware of how your friends interact with your kids. Yeah. Be aware and, you know, make sure that like if somebody is doing something like that, that's not, you don't explain that away. If they're touching a child's breast area or their pubic area or the inner right. groin or like the buttocks or whatever. No, no, those are not safe people for your children to be around. That's right. Yeah. My dad would frame it in a way where it was, you know, it seemed really benign. Um, so he would intentionally touch uh, the no touch zone, the bathing suit zone, uh, because he said, I know some of these kids are getting, uh, good touch, bad touch uh, training in schools. So he said, I would intentionally touch, like give a pat on the hip. So he said, that's still in the no touch zone, but it's not groping yet. Uh, yeah, um, it is. And so, right. But, but to the child, it's not. And to the parent, seeing somebody just give a quick pat on the hip, um, to the parent, that, that's not alarming. And so that parent who's just taught their kid that nobody is allowed to touch you anywhere that your bathing suit goes. Um, that parent literally just witnessed this person do it. And my dad told me he would go back and he would remind the kids of that and say, you know, it really is okay. You know, it, it is okay if, if, if uh, you know, if mommy and daddy taught you that it's not okay to touch in that area, um, it's actually okay because they just saw, they just saw me do it. Well, in a kid's mind, they're such concrete thinkers that, that they're like, you know, that you're right. So it, it's very purposeful. N nothing is accidental with abusers. Um, nothing is accidental with abusers. Um, so anyway, I yeah. just, I wanted to point that out and just, you know, tell people, be aware. If you see somebody, even a touch on the shoulder, if you think that that's benign, um, chances are it might not be. Uh, so pull your child in closer. Let that person know that you're watching and tell them, please don't touch my child. Uh, you're nicer than me. I wouldn't even say please. I'd be like, don't touch my child. Just, just, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, 
and, 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 you know, on that note, like, I'd like to add, too, that that creepy uncle or aunt that your child, like, doesn't want to hug. Stop forcing your children to hug people. Yeah. Seriously, stop it. If your child has a problem with physically touching somebody, stop forcing them to do that. Because right there, you're teaching your child they're not allowed to say no. Yeah, 100%. Please stop doing that. Um, do you have anything to add, Audrey? Hello? Can you well, hear Well, I think us? right alongside that goes goes the whole tickling games. Can you, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Yes. Can you, okay. I think right alongside that go the acceptable tickling games, you know, amongst uncles and aunts and cousins. That's not okay. Yeah. Because I think it just, it's a doorway for inappropriate touch to become normalized and it can be a version of testing i've seen it yep exactly that thank you yeah audrey that reminded me of um somebody had sent me a couple years ago or a few years ago um pictures of this uh youth pastor at a church that he would dress up as, as a bunny rabbit like around easter time and that was his thing like not getting kids to sit in his lap for pictures but he was the wrestling Easter bunny. And there were pictures of kids like this guy's a youth pastor. Like these are not little, little kids. These are older kids. And this guy's like wrestling with them on the ground in a bunny suit, like a full on bunny, bunny rabbit suit, um, tickling them. And, and the church defended it. And they were like, you know, this is just, you know, this is his silly way of getting, you know, getting kids to laugh. And it's like an icebreaker around Easter time. And I'm like, this is just weird. Like, this is nuts. <laughs> you cannot open the eyes of those you do not want to see. <laughs> That's Isn't that insane, though? Like, church, like churches defend that. People, people, people like that. I just like willfully ignorant. They willingly choose to stay on the side of ignorance because when somebody's bringing it to their attention that this is inappropriate and probably a form of testing, yeah, they're, they're willfully choosing to be ignorant and remain mm -hmm. ignorant and continue to have an ignorant response which fails every single child that is in that congregation. Right. Yeah, and the, and the abuser is laughing. Literally, in a bunny suit, laughing at how stupid the adults are. Yeah, no. Which, you know, that that is just insane. Like, oh my gosh. Oh, she sent me pictures too. Like, she wasn't, this wasn't an exaggeration whatsoever. Like, she sent me pictures and screenshots where she called the church out. And they were, like, on their Facebook page. They were like, this is just, this is a fun thing that he wants to do. You know, he likes to do this. And... He bought the suit with his own money, and I'm like, I like, don't care. You're yelling at a parent saying you're going to take this guy's joy away? Like, you're nuts. <laughs> People are nuts. Of course, he bought the suit with his own money. You know why he bought the suit with his own money? So he can test these children to figure out which ones are the best victims for right. him because they will be silenced forever. 
And the parents, as the parents are sitting around laughing as he's tickling their kids on the ground. It's just nuts. Like, that's what I talk about when I talk about testing. That guy's not yeah. grooming people. Um, because if you're dumb enough to trust somebody in a in, in a rabbit bunny out, outfit, <laughs> then uh, I, I'm not sure that that's testing. I think you need um, to be examined. I, I you need your head examined. <laughs> I don't even know that I have a problem with a bunny outfit. What I have a problem <laughs> with is it, it's it's is the whole like he's he's dressing himself up as something to appeal to these children and then doing this whole testing process mm -hmm. and nobody nobody has a consideration for like any of these children. Yeah. At all. Whatsoever. Yeah. That's my yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's weaponizing the Easter bunny. That's what he's doing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. That's crazy. Oh boy. Which so so here's another thing is like what education do these does ministry have? Yeah. So I mean we talked about this a little bit before we recorded, but you know, for me, um so in the Church of Christ, we're 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 probably similar to what you described in, in the Amish church um, where we don't require, we don't require a degree. Um, so it's not required, but it's, but it's preferred that you have um, a Bible degree. Um, we don't do ordination. So there is no formal process where you have to um, be approved by a board. Um, it is any autonomous church can hire or fire you um, at will. So, uh, you know, there are plenty of people that that don't have any formal background or uh, something that's gained popularity, I think, starting in the, in the 1970s is preacher training schools. So it's a two-year school to teach people how to preach, but it's not, it's not a degree. Um, it's not a formal degree. It's a... Um, I guess it's like more more like a certificate of a completion. Um, so you still have your your Bible work, your book work, and you still learn Koine Greek and you know those sorts of things. But um, but it's not a formal degree. It's not a recognized degree. Um, my degree. So I have two degrees in Bible. I have a, a Bachelor of Arts in uh, Bible and Religion. Uh, that's a four year degree, and then my Master's is also a four year degree. Um, and that's uh, the Master of Divinity. So it's 84 credit hours. Um, and it was really, really intense. Um, at the time I went to school, my alma mater was second to Harvard uh, Divinity School. So, um, you know, they were literally, Harvard was their competitor. Um, and, you know, and I got, I wrote about this in the book. I got zero training on abuse in the church. Wasn't even mentioned. Wow. I did four and a half years because I like to take the long route. Um, four and a half years undergraduate, uh, then four and a half years it, for my master's. So nine years of upper level education, not one reference, not one to sexual abuse in the church. Wow. So. Wow. How are you supposed to handle that? And that makes me wonder, like, we should probably talk about how Audrey's church selected their ministry as well and what education requirements there were. Yeah, I'd be curious. How did your church select ministry, Audrey? 
Well, the churches would do a do a vote, so to speak, of, and put but I think at the time it was a total of you know they could vote for whoever they wanted, but then I, I think they narrowed it down. There was a, each person had to have a certain amount of votes to make it into the lot. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, if it was it fifteen votes or five? I think it was five. I, I don't remember. There, there was a select amount of votes that they had to have to make, and then the men that were in the lot um, would be chosen by whoever drew opened the book that had the slip of paper, and they'd put a stack of hymnals on the table, and each man would come up and pull a book, and whoever opened the book and had the slip of paper was the one that was chosen. So it was just a, you know, most often someone who was well-respected amongst the congregation um, that end up drawing the slip, but it wasn't anyone with it. I mean, there was no education, there was no instruction, there was nothing. Well, you know, that's that's literally almost exactly how my church did it. And we were like really, really old order Amish, like literally. And and like you said, there's no formal education. Like it's just, it's insane to me that you put people in these positions of power and you give them like no education how to handle the issues that they come across. Like for example, so now you have these people that have no education And even if they went to like a pastorship or they went to college, they don't have any tools on how to appropriately deal with child sexual assault in their churches. Can we fix that? Is there a solution for that? Well, I, I, you know, I almost didn't write um, in my book. I almost didn't write the part about my alma mater not training me at all. Um, because I was like, oh, this is going to step on toes. But then I was like, you know what? Like, that's that's exactly why we're having this problem because people don't have these conversations. And, I'll, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to make the point, like, I value my education. I got a really good education. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was really good. It was rock solid. Um, but there's this big missing piece that, in my opinion, is the biggest missing piece. It's the biggest component that churches are going to face. I don't know of a church that hasn't faced some form of abuse in the church um, almost routinely. I don't know of a church that's out there. So, uh, you know, why is it that we put so much emphasis uh, in, in our circles, we put so much emphasis on the book knowledge. Um, So it's on getting people to really think and sharpen their skills and get people into the scriptures. And and I appreciate that heritage. You know, I, I, I like that they, get us to dig deep into the Bible um, and to think critically about it. It's not just, you know, mind numbing stuff. Like you have to be able to think on your own. Um, And I, and I appreciate that. Um, But, you know, at the same, at the same time, absolutely nothing about abuse. So can we change that? Um, I likened it in my book. I likened it to, um, or actually drew a contrast between the way that we train people and the way Jesus trained people. Jesus didn't take formally trained Jewish people. He didn't grab rabbis that had spent, you know, years and years in, in rabbi school. Um, Jesus grabbed fishermen, uneducated people. When, when we translate, when we learn Koine Greek, um, the first book of the Bible that we translate is the gospel of John. Um, and first, second, and third John, John's letters. Why? 
because John, John's language was so elementary. Um, he was writing on what would be about the equivalent of, of a, probably a fourth grade level. John was very uneducated. Um, John wrote some of the most significant books in the entire Bible. Um, why did Jesus pick common people? So that, that begs another question, Mary um, and Audrey. Can, can uneducated people lead in ministry? I think they can. Um, but Jesus trained them in a different way. And I, so I wrote about this in the book. And I said, when he sent them out on their own, very early in his ministry, there are nine verses recorded where Jesus equips them uh, to go out and be on their own. Nine verses. It took me nine years to go through college and, and graduate mm -hmm. courses. Nine years. Jesus spent nine verses. And what he told them is, I'm sending you out as lambs among the wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And then he tells them what they're going to experience. You're going to experience floggings in the synagogue. It, these are not hypotheticals. He's telling them, you're going to be flogged when you walk into synagogues. You're going to experience father rising up against son and killing them, son rising up against father and killing them. Um, you're going to witness this hatred, all these sorts of things. And he's not talking about out there in the world. He's talking about within the religious community. You're going to experience these things. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And then I kind of broke that down in the book, what, what mm -hmm. Jesus meant by that. Um, what he's doing is he's teaching them to be street smart and to confront those sorts of things, not to pretend like, you know, church is this happy place where, you know, you come in and we're going to bury all your pain and pretend like it doesn't exist. And, um, and if you speak up about it, we're going to kick you out of the community. Or we're going to label you as unforgiven. Right. And you're, you know, there's no hope for your soul and you're going to help. There's a whole spew. Of, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not it. Yeah. So I think I, we need I to think... rethink the way we train people and, and, and tell people like, you want to train, you want to train ministers that are going into ministry, whether they have the formal education or not. Because I, at the end of the day, um, I think it's certainly helpful. I think there's tremendous value in, uh, in education. I really do. Um, right. But that's not required to be a good person. That's not required to be a leader. That's not required to have a good heart and to do what's right. Um, I know plenty of people who have no higher than, you know, seventh, eighth grade high school uh, education who are some of the most respected people that I know, like just really, really good people, um, smart people, intelligent people. Um, so... so you know, I, I think we need to we need to rethink the way we train people and take them out, take them into inner cities and, and let them let them talk to people who are walking the streets as prostitutes who are getting, you know, raped and beaten and pimped out um, and children that are being pimped out in the streets. Uh, take them out and show them and say, this is this is going on in your church, too. It Different is. Things. Um, I think there's a difference between formal education and people who are like some people are lifelong learners and they always seek to further their themselves and better themselves and and the the environment that they're in by continuing to educate themselves and and there's a big difference between formal education and that type of education where mm -hmm. people are going out and they're listening to people who have lived experiences um 
it, it's it's just a really big difference. Yeah. It's not saying that either one of them is more important, but it's also saying like, for example, like um, I, I've heard deacons read from our formal books that we had because they were, they were required to read a Bible verse at every church service. And because the, the Bible and New Testament was written in Hochdeutsch and they had a lack of education, like they could barely read that. Hmm let alone like people listening to this reading wouldn't be able to understand it because some of the schools that I went to, because I went to four different schools inside of the Amish communities. And some of those schools that I went to had a really, really, really poor standard for education as far as like they were supposed to teach us Hochdeutsch. And, and so explain to me what Hochdeutsch is because I'm, I'm, I don't know what it is. Okay, so Pennsylvania Dutch is a bastardized version of a mixture of German and English, and it's spoken only. It's kind of an oppressive language. Mm -hmm. um, but Hochdeutsch is an actual formal German language. Now, when you go mm -hmm. around, like if you ever go to Deutschland, um, if you go around in the different areas, um, each region has a different dialect that they speak. But in Can you understand the different dialects? Like, could you kind of pick it up after a while or is it? Well, I lived in Germany for five years. Okay. Um, yes, I, I could understand a lot of the, the dialect in the region that I lived in. But if I went to a different region, I had a lot more trouble. Yeah. And then there's, yeah. Um, so... The, the fact that you have people who speak an entirely different language, who have no way of writing it, required to write in English, and then reading and studying their biblical things are all done in, in Hochdeutsch. Like in my church, it was all in Hochdeutsch. So how, how, how does that affect, like how does education affect that? Or were all of your Bibles, so were the Bibles that all of you guys read also, um, they were all Hochdeutsch translations? Yes. Okay. So you, uh, there, there was no, we didn't have an English Bible. We were, a matter of fact, we were warned against the English Bible because it's a funny translation can lead to a funny belief. And then if you abandon the ways of your forefathers, like you're going, there's, there's no hope for your soul, Jimmy. Hmm. Makes sense. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, they would yeah, go back yeah. to the to the original German, and they would go back to the original German and say that that um, supersedes the English version too. So yes, and if you would like, I still have my Nias Testament. I can read you a, a verse from the Bible if you would like. Literally, yeah, yeah. that'd be well, great. Hold on one second. Let me yeah. grab it. Grab it. So was that the case for your Bibles too, Audrey? They were split. Most of the most of the members of the church who would have been more traditional would have had English and German Bibles. So the one side of the page would be English, and it would have been um, the Old King James version, and then the other side would have been German. And so they would preach. They would preach in the German and reference the English, and so the 
Okay. The liberal, the more liberal, the more progressive ministers would throw in more English than German. So that's what ended up, that was ended up being one of the reasons that the new order split off of the old order because they felt like in order to be a light, they needed to be able to use English in their services. So uh, there's been a war over this, so to speak, in the churches for years. Yeah. Gotcha. Oh, you're mute. I think you're muted, Mary. So there's also some Amish communities I've heard of that they use like a German and English translated Bible, but my community was not like that at all. Uh, whatsoever. Yeah, Audrey was just saying that hers was, yeah, so half was English and the other half was German. Yeah. Okay, so for example, um, here, I don't know if you can read. Yep, I can see it. Ich sag, was zum Mundan geht, das Vereinigung der Menschen nicht. Sondern was zum Mundan geht, das Vereinigung der Menschen. And the best translation I have for that is like, it's not what you um, take in that, um, I don't know what that word is or how to translate that, but it's basically like makes you unclean, but it's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Yeah. That one. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Huh. So, so I, I guess my question is, is like, so if, like people that are in these communities, like where does the education come into play there? Like they're not having this education to where they can even understand that or comprehend it. Like, well, it sounds to me, I mean, it sounds to me kind of almost like what happened with the, um, with the Catholic church where people had to read in, in Latin. Um, well, people didn't know Latin. So then they started, uh, people started learning Latin because they wanted to read their Bibles. Well, then uh, the Catholic Church started to panic a little bit, so they just started discouraging people from 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 actually owning Bibles. So they would limit the supply of Bibles because they didn't, did, you know, didn't want educated people sitting in the pews. Um, so you know, it almost sounds like a form of oppression where we're gonna we're gonna give you a Bible but you're not going to really know how to read it. You know, is or, that a fair, is that or, a fair assessment? Yeah. Or understand or comprehend it or anything yeah. like that. You know, just kind of like, I, I'm a big reader. I've read over a hundred books this year. Like just, I, I read a lot. Um, but like, it's, there's like, what about this one? So I learned how to read, right. And I learned how to read Hochdeutsch. And there's like this whole verse in the Bible that says like, which kind of means like obey the government for the government is appointed by God and all mm -hmm. this other stuff. Right. And so I said to my family, I said, well, why are we fighting this? Because if the government's appointed by God, then why are we fighting this? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And yeah. it was something dumb, like literally dumb. It's akin to like, the the outhouses where they're not appropriately disposing of the the disposal from the outhouses or mm -hmm. something it was something dumb like that and and i was told by my stepfather that like well i'm a woman so i can't possibly read and comprehend that appropriately yeah so when you say it's a form of oppression yeah i kind of feel like it, it is. is yeah it is yeah no not kind of it is yeah it, it's it's keeping people women especially um, you know, in those uh, ultra conservative 
congregations because you know we we experience that too i mean and and across every denomination in the extremely conservative you know slash fundamentalist churches um you know it's it's people joke about it but it's not it's not a joke to the women where Mm -mm. all jokes like you know your job is to to be in the kitchen and and to have babies um you know barefoot and pregnant that's right yeah i mean people say those as jokes but they don't realize like that really is going on in yeah. ultra conservative churches. Like that literally is not a joke in ultra conservative churches. Um, yeah. People are demanding it. It's the reality. And you're joking about people's lives that people that immensely are oppressed and they suffer and they're going through all of these things and there's, there's just no help for them. And so right. um, we have a question frequently here comes Elam with his, what horse is he riding in on today? <laughs> Frequently throughout history, the church sided with oppression, slavery in the United States being an example. Is there a connection between the church's failure on abuse in the United States government? Um, can I ask a question? Who are you asking? Um, <laughs> Audrey, <anybody>? ask away. <laughs> ask her anything. Anybody. Um, so if the United States government is supposed to be governing these things and they've made all of these laws and they don't hold the churches accountable to the laws that they've made, is the government part of the problem or the solution or both? Yeah, I think both. I think there's always been, um, historically, there's always been this um, interconnection between uh, religion and government, um, which I don't think is inherently a bad thing, um, unless your Mm -hmm. theology is really screwed up. Well, it just so happens um, that every abuse survivor I know (laughs) knows that um, churches' theologies are really screwed up. So... You know, you get lawmakers that are making laws because it's for the better good of people. Um, and you just get these wild, wildly oppressive laws on both sides of the aisle. You know, this is both a left and a right issue. This is not one or the other. Um, and I always say, like, you know, if you look at extreme radical left and extreme radical right, the end result is exactly the same. It's It's intolerance it's legalism it's oppression it's if you don't think this way then you're not really a christian you're a bad human you're you know whatever you're you know put phobe on the end of a word and 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 you've got it you know and that's on both sides you know extremism breeds extremism and so i you know i think when we had the slavery issue going on i mean you had inhumane stuff that was going on um that it, it was a humanitarian crisis and it was justified in their minds. It was justified legally. It was justified biblically. Um, so, you know, certainly the government's part of the problem, but so is the church. And I don't know that they're as separated as people think they are. I think they're still really intertwined. And we see that in Pennsylvania um, with what's going on with the um, statute of limitation reform for, uh, for child sexual abuse, you know, uh, the Catholic Church has thrown millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in in buying um, politicians, you know, lobbying. I wrote a I wrote an op-ed for um, RNS Religion News Service um, back a couple years ago, 
that talked about the numbers. Like it's insane what's going on in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania right now. And the Catholic church is in bed with our government and, uh, and, and they deny it. And they're like, Oh no, 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 no. Well, yes, yes, yes. Follow the money. Um, and you can see these lobbyists are being paid exorbitant amounts of money from the Catholic church. Um, to keep statute of limitation reform off the table. And it's worked so far. Yeah. And I think you're you're absolutely right when you talk about this is an American issue. It's not a left or a right issue. And I sure. you're you're absolutely right too when you talk about extremism. Extremists are extremists. Sure. Like, like they just it just is. Like there's there's similar thinking on both sides. But like at the end of the day, in order to change things, what has to happen, I believe, is that we all have to come together as Americans. Yes. And, and who cares about left or right? At the end of the day, sure. have some human rights here. Yeah. yeah. Have some yeah. human rights. Because, we, you know, in one of our earlier episodes, we had talked about like human rights violations that are being committed by some of the churches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we all need to come together and and try to do what is best for human rights, not necessarily this or this or this or whatever. We need to, we need to really have some reform around that. Um, You know, it's it's interesting too, at the end of the day, I mean, I don't know if you guys both um, experience this or would agree with this, but it, you know, Jesus tells us to be like little children. And and I've heard people preach about that. And they're like, oh, he's talking about the innocence, the innocent. And, you know, kind of like this naive, walk around naive and with rose tinted glasses. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. You look at children, they're incredibly smart. They're very honest, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Like some of the things that come out of their mouth in in the grocery store, you're like, you know, no, no, no. Like, Dad, why, why is that lady, why is that lady on the scooter? <laughs> and then because she can't walk because she's so big, and you're like, no, no, no. Like, they're brutally honest, you know. Um, they, they don't mince words, uh, but they're also compassionate towards people. They have a lot um, of compassion. Kids know, without ever telling them, kids know right from wrong. They know if they've done something that's wrong because some kids, I mean, well, all kids like to push boundaries, but when they do something that's bad, um, kids will either deny or eventually if you kind of pin them into, into a corner and make them tell the truth, they either deny or they cry. They'll break down and they'll cry because they they feel guilt. They feel shame and they're like, you know, I treated – I treated my sister, I treated my brother really badly. And, you know, kids know right from wrong. They really do. So it's, so it's not like we have to go out and go on these education campaigns and, you know, teach people what bullying is. People know that my five-year-old son knows what bullying is. Without ever being taught in school, he knows what bullying is. He knows right from wrong. Uh Well, do you, do you agree with this also? Um, you know, when kids push boundaries, they're testing to make sure those boundaries are still there so they feel safe. I think that's a good possibility. Um, I never really thought about it that way. Um, but I know it happens. Like, I know it happens when kids push boundaries and, and parents 
allow them to move that stone. Well, yeah. So you know? boundaries are put in place to keep the kids safe. Yeah. Right. And others. Exactly. Safe. Keep people safe. Sure. So when you have a child who pushes boundaries and you let them push that boundary out past further than what is safe for them, they end up feeling ultimately unsafe and then they act out in even more inappropriate ways. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Man, yeah. this is like completely not the direction I saw this going. <laughs> <laughs> also, let me give you a funny, I don't know if you all saw it or not. Uh, so the other day I asked my kid if I was cool enough, if we were cool enough to go on their field trip with them. And they said, mom, you're not cool, but you can come. <laughs> See, they're honest. <laughs> and that's why you start talking about kids being honest. I'm like, you should meet my kid. My kid's just a mini me. They they are really a mini me. It's great. Yeah. yeah. That's that's a lot of brutal honesty in one. But, but kids can talking. be un. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Audrey. You were just talking, Audrey. I was just talking with an older Amish fellow this morning that actually. I was talking with an older Amish fellow this morning who works at a boys camp, works with troubled boys from all different, you know, plain backgrounds. And I asked him, I was playing like asked him. I said, so he, he was lamenting the fact that he has to send these children home to less than ideal environments and how, you know, he can pour into these children. But at the end of the day, he sends them right back into the lion's den. And that the people who are closest to them and that should be protecting them and setting boundaries for them and with them are refused to acknowledge that there's a problem or that they have a problem and they're the reason their child has a problem. And then we got to talking a little bit about how they're, the younger generation, how things are shifting. And, and I was asking him some questions about what, what he sees as the issue. And he said, well, honestly, he said, like, we look down on Southern Lancaster and we think that, you know, these people really just don't got it. But he said, at the end of the day, he said, these, some of these communities like Southern Lancaster, he's, said i get ready to send these boys home and he said they're not even allowed to take their testaments with them he said they're not even allowed to have it on their person and when you stop and think about that i mean when traditional ways of any church become more important than the scriptures how do we expect generationally anything to shift and that's where i think the awareness of the broader society that needs to happen because uh, like Mary was saying, it's an American problem because we romanticize Christianity, we romanticize different cultures within Christianity, and in doing so, we deny the very issues that are being created by our romanticism. Absolutely, yeah. No, not you know. I think like we talked about, kids kids inherently know right from wrong, but they also can they can be taught that boundaries don't matter. That yep that they're not valuable enough as, as a human um, to have those boundaries held in place. And they can also be untaught. Um, you know, you look at some of these kids that are brainwashed um, into being white supremacists and, you know, just really racist, uh, like, you know, mouthing off constantly, um, just full of hatred. That's not inherent. That's a that's a taught. That's unteaching a child and then reteaching a child um, to hate people. That is not how kids are wired. They're just not. Uh, they're not wired to see color. They're not wired um, 
to treat people differently. Um, you know, they, it, it breaks my heart when I, you know, when I see kids, whether they're in the church or, or, or not, um, when those boundaries are completely violated and stripped away and pushed in these kids, I feel like so many kids don't even stand a chance. Um, so many millions of kids. Um, no. and, and I don't know how we, how we start reversing that. Um, because there's a whole lot of non-parenting going on in homes and you have so many abusive people that are abusing their kids in the homes and even things like that, that you wouldn't think about Audrey, you know, like, they're not even allowed to carry their Bibles with them. Um, that's that's a form of abuse. Um, and it's just well, it, and it's, it's bring, another avenue. Kind of it's another level. Around to the question. That's what kind of brings me around to the question that I asked him. So where do we start? Because we can work with these these victims, and then we send them back. You know, six months to a year later. And they're still minors and they're still they're, they're going back to these situations and you know so the parents most of them aren't willing to take a look at it the ministry most of them aren't willing to step out i mean the younger generation is starting to happen but um where do we start it's like it's like the fellow said you know sometimes it just feels hopeless you know we we pour into a life and and you wonder how far it's gonna go yeah. so what what where do we when and it comes to the broader picture. I mean, like you said, we can we can educate, we can talk till we're blue in the face, but you can lead a horse to water and you can't make them drink. So where's where's the most important place for us to focus our energies? And because like even the white supremacist issue, like you're talking about, like it's all trauma and or boundary retraining. Mm -hmm. Like that's not natural for a child. Right. Yeah. So where do we where do we begin on the broader picture? We have to break it down into bite-sized pieces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think on the one level, um, I know this sounds kind of cliche, but you know, talking about these issues, um, and really focusing on people who, who are right in front of us who are broken. You know, like one of the things that, that I was just lamenting with um, with another abuse advocate the other day, and I, I said in the last two years, advocacy is not what it used to be. Um, you have people getting on political soapboxes and like they're, they're so angry all the time and they don't even know what they're angry about anymore. Um, and they're shouting and, and shouting people down and they're backstabbing other advocates and there's all this weird stuff going on. And I'm like, it has nothing to do with child abuse. Like, and I find myself getting pulled into things that have nothing to do with child sexual abuse. And I have to like snap myself back. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, like <laughs> these issues, these issues that are outside of that, um, there are other people who can fight those issues and fight them. Well, um, my area is child sexual abuse period. And, we have advocates who are getting sucked into all this, uh, all this nonsense where, I mean, the latest issue that's pissing people off, that's, that's what they're, that's what they're jumping on. And they're angry about this today, but tomorrow they're going to be angry about something else. And they're, they want to call everybody out. Well, that's not really helpful. And that doesn't help us work together and link arms and um, help these kids because what you're doing, Audrey, I mean, you are in the lives of these kids every day who are absolutely like their world has burned down around them 
and they have nowhere safe to go. Um, and that's what matters. Uh, so, you know, kind of teaching them, I guess the bite-sized pieces are teaching them um, from a young age how, how to how to survive um, because you know you're they're going to go right back into those abusive homes um, and maybe sharpening their their street smart skills a little bit um, you know teach them how to hide how to you know how to hiding how to reach out to what's hiding. that mary hiding doesn't matter hiding doesn't keep you safe it makes the abuse worse yeah i guess that's true yeah you experienced that where your abusers would pull the hinges off the door and come in, you know? Um, That's, I, I don't, I don't, it, it's such a complex issue. Um, I truly believe that, like, mm -hmm. honestly, I, I believe that there's a lot of problems within, like, we need some reform for our uh, CPS, yeah. DHS, like, those agencies need to have some massive massive reform because as it stands like there's a lot of children that, that just get abandoned by the system yeah and, they do yeah and they get thrown through the wolves and so like i think that here's here's a question so the person that's working with all these youth are they a mandated reporter Can you You're talking me? to Audrey? Yes. Is this person a mandated reporter? The person that's working with all of these children, is this person a mandated reporter? That's a tough question to answer. Technically, he would be, yes. But there, there's the technicalities around that. Morally, absolutely. Technically, I... It would be gray. Okay. Um, so it's killing him. What are his choices? Because at the end of the day, what recourse do we have when we suspect abuse or we know there's abuse or we believe there's abuse of these children? What recourse do we have for like the laws? The, the, generally, we can report it to like CH, uh, CPS or like DHS or child protective services and here's the problem with that is if you do that in regards to the health care of an amish child i firmly believe the amish community would stop sending their children there what do you think yeah most of the most of the boys that they get well most of the boys that they get you know those those issues have already been identified now how much of it has been some of it has obviously been reported they usually have a long waiting list. Um, how much of that gets actually uncovered and reported? I, like while in the program, I didn't specifically ask him that question this morning. Gotcha. But yes, I agree with you. Like, I mean, when, when if the Amish communities would start, would start reporting every single situation, it would stop real fast. It would. It well, would literally yeah. stop. <clears throat> I think, you know, Mary, you have a good point too. That you know, at the same time, the CPS system it needs reformed. Uh, you know, part of the issue, and and the further east we go in Pennsylvania, the worse the worse the system is. I mean, it's just completely overwhelmed. Um, you have an issue of turnover that's just crazy. Like it's low pay, super low pay. Um, they they put really young people 
into these homes with horrific abuse um, that they're just not, they're not equipped to see the kinds of things that they're seeing and it creates trauma for, for them. And then they, you know, they get burned out, they quit. The pay is terrible. Um, reports just, you know, they get stacked on a pile. Like I've heard all the horror stories from people who, who work in these organizations and um, you know, and Mary, good, good point. Uh, you know, it, it shouldn't be up to the child to fend for themselves. It, you know, it, it's, as that was coming out of my mouth, I was like, you know, it's really the adult's responsibility to protect children. Children can't, at the end of the day, children can't protect themselves. Um, they're little humans. Um, they're dependent on people for survival, for food, for clothing, for shelter. They're dependent on big people for survival. So it's time big people start acting like big people. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, I think instead exactly. of, instead of all of these keyboard um, crusaders that want to go on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, talk about how bad which president they hate the worst at, at any given time. Like those things don't matter at the end of the day for kids that are living in homes that are really, really nope. crappy. Um, nope. They don't matter. Nope. Um, so we need people to really hyper-focus and retrain these organizations um, to really confront, to confront evil, to confront abuse of people. Um we need to retrain well, judges and to stop putting kids back in abusive homes. Yes. And when you have a, a child that's begging you know, not, to, not to be sent back to an abusive parent, don't send them back to an abusive parent. Right. And, and fix the foster care system. Yeah. While you're at it, fix the foster care system. I know I don't have big ideas here or anything. I'm the not asking for a lot. The foster care system is so broken. Yeah, I know. It is. Very, and, very, very broken. And, and and I'm just like, I'm not, I want to say I don't feel like I'm asking for a lot. We're literally just asking for children in America to have a chance. So all I'm asking for, give yeah. them a chance. Give them some food, shelter, protection, you know, make sure their basic needs are met. Uh, protect them. Yeah. Can we just give them a chance? That's, yeah. Well, I mean, but like... It, I've Go ahead. Had brief, I've had brief experience, you know, over the last few years with, with children and youth for the first time in my life. And I can honestly say the county that I'm in has been amazing. You know, they, they, they are so grateful for me as a mom stepping up to protect my kids. Like, I'm so grateful for them. And the last allegations that were made against me, they didn't even open the case. So many resources get wasted on pointless calls so many resources and they don't have many resources to begin with but what you mentioned no, jimmy i've really noticed you know with no prior knowledge of cys um they send out these young you know 18 to 20 year olds to my house to investigate allegations that they don't they don't even have a clue about like they don't, they don't even yeah. understand how it works the turnover rate is crazy and then i have a dear friend who lives one county of over and the system there is a total train wreck. The foster system is a total train wreck. They took children out of the healthy, uh, they took children away from a healthy mom who is trying to get her kids to safety. And they're literally, they've put them in a foster situation that's more, more damaging than the original home environment was to begin with. Yeah. And it's just like, it, it's a mind 
support for me. And like you said, the whole system needs to be deconstructed, kind of like the church, and just rebuilt from the ground up. Yeah. And I think I, I think that's a hard part. Like, but there's before no... we can do that, we have to have adults that understand it. Right. And there needs to be a centralized method of doing that. Like, you know, take, you know, again, I talk about Pennsylvania because both you and I are in Pennsylvania um, and we kind of know, know the system somewhat how it works here. Um, like you talked about, you move from county to county and it is wildly different. And you're talking about the same organization. You're talking about children and youth. Um, mm -hmm. CYS, Children and Youth Services, from county to county, it varies wildly. It's like you have no idea what you're going to get from county to county. So what I say works in Somerset County, um, and we have, you know, we have a fairly decent Children and Youth Services. It's not the best, but it's not the worst. Um, I hear horror stories from other counties where they're like, we couldn't even get them to return a phone call. Like, you know, here's a kid that's literally has welt marks all over the body and, you know, clear signs of, of physical distress, mental distress. We couldn't even, we couldn't even get a call back, you know, and, and that's horrifying. That's, that's unacceptable to have a system. That's not wow. somewhat centralized it's also starved for money. You know, or that's the other thing, Mary, talking about government. I mean, we, we just passed how many trillions of dollars of stimulus packages? My wife and I were like, we literally got three deposits in our bank account for, for money that we didn't need. Like, we didn't lose our jobs. Why? There Why? are people who need that money. There are organizations that need that money. Children and youth is starved for money. Uh-huh. Starved for money. And, you know, at the end of the day, like just pouring more money into it isn't the entire solution because, I, I mean, personally, sure. I, yeah, feel like, yeah. I feel like sending a 20-year-old out to investigate you, Audrey, like that's, how is a 20-year-old going to know all of these things to look for? Right. How are they going to appropriately investigate? How are they, I mean, to me, it just feels like they probably don't have the knowledge even if they're intelligent, they're educated, a 20-year-old doesn't have the life experience behind it to where they can literally look at that person and say, like, this is an abuser. But then when you're paying somebody, you know, $12 an hour or, you know, eleven fifty <sighs> an hour or whatever they may, like, how are you <laughs> going to get somebody that has, you know, that's a 30-year-old that's a person that has 10 years experience working in, in, in a really really difficult field that that is so um and, and do they even, so emotionally hard it's 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 um what is it called i want to say it's called compassion mm -hmm. fatigue but i don't think it's that um it's people can get ptsd by proxy from like the trauma that they're continually exposed to in their workplace yeah. yes that happens i'm sure and then another question is is like well, what I type have... of like if if they're only paying them twelve dollars an hour yeah. What type vicarious of trauma, vicarious trauma. That's the term. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but are they providing them with health insurance? Do they give them benefits? Yeah. Like, do they have the ability to even seek any kind of mental health support for the, the, what did you say that word was? Vicarious trauma. Yeah. That one. Yeah. For the, for the vicarious trauma that they're living through. 
do they even have the financial capacity to do so based on that pay? Like, I feel like $12 an hour nowadays is the equivalent of $4 in, what was it, like 75 cents an hour that I made in 2004. Right. Like, it's it's yeah. literally nothing. Especially for that field. You know, like the, the, the field of abuse, every, every abuse advocate says the same thing. You know, we all say, like, we're, we're like, it's a joke. Um, we joke with each other. It's an inside joke. Like, yeah, you're in it for the money, huh? You know? <laughs> like, like we get paid right, got Audrey? Today. right, Audrey, you're in it for the money, huh? <laughs> you got jokes today, Jimmy. Yep. <laughs> yep, totally. That's what, can't you tell? <laughs> you know, uh -huh. I still haven't made a single dime out of this, but okay. I'm in it for right? the money, right? Right. Yeah. No, matter of fact, I'm throwing money at this, but okay. Whatever helps people sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's it's just such a complex. Well, I had one. I had one of the the children. I had one of the children and youth workers that was out here. She was she couldn't have been much older than my oldest daughter, and she looked at her and she said, "Why do you still live at home?" And my daughter's like, because um, I love my mom and I like to live at home. Is that a problem? And she said, well, it's just pretty rare in my work that I ever see a child that's 18 living at home. That's pretty telling on a lot of fronts. I think, too. Well, what about this one? Like, um, there's a lot of parents that I've, people that I know that like their parents basically said, you're 18, get out. And they kind of like kicked their kids out at 18. I'm absolutely horrified by that. But like, is that common? Do, do people really think that's appropriate? I think um, probably not so much kicking them, like forcing them out at 18, but the expectation that once you're an adult, you get out, you know, get out of the house, get your own house, get, you know, get on your own two feet. And then we wonder why there is such a debt crisis. Um, this is why, you know? Yeah. And they're not taught like kids are not exactly. taught in school, um, how to budget their money. Uh, at least we weren't. And, uh, you know, you're, you're not given finance courses. You're not like, if anything, when you turn 18, all the uh, all the credit card sharks are are sending stuff because they know like your information is being sold constantly, and you get in the mail all these credit card offers, and an eighteen year old is like, "Cool, you know," right? Um, for somebody who doesn't know any better, and these these card companies prey on naive uh, eighteen year olds because they know mom and dad are saying, "Okay, time to be on your own." Well, then they get all these credit cards and they're like, man, I can get, you know, four different credit cards. Um, there's no limit to how many cards I can get. And I can get, you know, $5,000 credit each. Um, I can go find my own place. But then they find themselves in financial trouble in addition to all these other issues. It's just, a, it's, it's a compound issue and it's so complex on so many levels. Yeah. And, wow. That's and they're like, I like what you said there, Jimmy, because I think that's so true. It's it's just a subconscious expectation. And I think it's, it's 
expectation of especially the generation prior, the last few generations. And I don't know if it yeah. comes from, you know, the wars in the Depression era where people were forced to like, you know, kind of push their kids out and because there wasn't enough to go around. Um, I'm not sure what it stems from, but it seems like it comes from that older, that baby, baby boomer generation of, you know, come on, you're 18, you need to carry your own weight now. You know, let's get going, get you out of the, get you out of the house. Um, yeah. But it is, it's a sub, subtle expectation. And even my oldest one talks about it. She's like, mom, I just feel like there's, I'm supposed to be doing it now. But she goes, I'm not ready. And they're not. Right. How is an 18-year-old to be ready for anything? I mean, their minds aren't even done developing. Their brains aren't done developing until they're 25. So why are we expecting them to make debt decisions, credit card decisions, property decisions? You know, oh, I'm going to buy a house or am I going to rent? Or right. um, career choices or marriage choices before then. Yeah. I yeah. I, I agree with that. I do also want to point out that, like, you know, part of, like, when you get out of, like, the, the Amish community, for me, because I didn't exist and I didn't have any type of anything, I couldn't even get um, car insurance on my own. I had to have somebody help me get car insurance. Mm -hmm. so, so it's just wild to me that you have 18-year-olds and then... You know, here on the other side, like, because you were Amish, like, you can't even get approved for, like, car insurance. Like, what? Or, like, yeah. you can't even get a cell phone. Like, because you have no credit. Everything is based on credit. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. yeah. It, it's insane. It's wild. I don't get it. Yeah. it it It's just, yeah. There, I think that's what people don't realize. Like, teaching people... You know, to to kind of circle it back, you know, teaching people to read their Bible and to stand in front of a pulpit is that that's not equipping people for life. We've got to equip. We've really got to equip people to to walk people through all these multifaceted um, issues because they're real. They're happening to take an average family, take a random sample of any family anywhere um, in the United States of America and there's a host of problems um, and it's because of, because of abuse, because of uh, boundaries being pushed because of um, neglect in the home, uh, because of kids being plopped out of their house and moved from foster home to foster home. Um, Audrey, I don't know if you remember back is probably two years ago. I was hearing ads on the radio constantly about how Pennsylvania has a massive shortage of foster parents. They had like, I think we had something like, mm -hmm. I don't remember what the number was, but but I think if I remember, it was like over 11,000 um, foster kids that didn't, didn't have anywhere to call home. Um, they had no placement. They were literally homeless. Um, it's, it's such an issue. There are so many issues. And um, I think advocates really need to refocus and, Think about why they went into advocacy in the first place. You know, calling calling other advocates out out on social media because they don't think the way you think isn't really helpful. That's not at the end of the day. That's not helping kids get safe. Um, and we need to get our crap together and get really focused. And but they get arms. really territorial. I don't. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And I don't it, understand that. Like you said, because we all bring a special piece. I mean, I don't bring everything to the advocacy world. You don't bring everything. There. We all sure. contribute our own unique pieces. And 
we're all different members of the body and we all need each other. So I don't understand the whole, you know, like, like you just said, you know, the issues that advocates begin to have, like why I think, I think part of it is when we start to just make it about us, it's not about us. It's about the children. Yeah. It is. It's really about the children. And I've got a lot of friends that do foster care and have done foster care for years and they, they lament the broken system. I have a mom who has finally, they've done foster care for many, many years, and she's finally just stepped out of it. She's like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. The system is so broken. And there are, there's a shortage. There's a shortage of parents, but a lot of the ones that are in are in it for the wrong reasons. And yeah. the ones who are in it for the right reasons, it just, it's exhausting for them because they're fighting to heal the broken families, to heal the broken situation, and the system is not supportive at all. Yeah. It's not designed for that. They probably don't have all the res- they don't have the resources that they need either because there's a huge financial shortage, which I, I just feel like there could be a better way to allocate all the tax dollars that we pay to to better distribute them amongst like for foster care stuff and for um, child protective services. I really do. I think it could be done better. And yeah. resources are absolutely necessary. I think it's really sad that people that do care get completely burnt out and then they end up having to quit because that's one less safe person that's working in a system that is inherently broken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the yeah. Compassion fatigue is so real and we um, can reallocate finances all day long, but until we have enough people that will step in and change the system, I mean, at the end of the day, just like the church, we, it goes right back to the, foundation that we can pour all sorts of resources in but we got to rebuild the foundation first and so that takes dedication and time and commodities that a lot of people aren't willing to pour into it oh yeah absolutely um thank you guys very much um do either of you have closing thoughts I would, I would just encourage listeners to, um to step in like audrey you talked about bite-sized pieces um you know, the advocacy, like the foster system, the advocacy community is starved for advocates. Um, and I have people constantly that email me and they're like, you know, how do I get, how do I get to the place where you're at? You know, and how do I, how do I get a platform? My short answer and frustrating answer for them is you don't. Um, I never sought a platform. You guys didn't seek platforms. You weren't like, I'm going to build a platform. You just started by the people who are right in front of you. You started having compassion for them and you started stepping in, in your own local community and doing the right thing. Um, and from there, uh, it, it just kind of blossoms and, and you learn to network with people and link arms with people, um, link arms with your district attorney, um, link arms with um, people in your community that, that, that do work at children and youth. Um, Generally, they're really good people. They're just understaffed and they have a high turnover rate. That doesn't mean they're bad people who want kids to be abused. Um, step in beside them in your local community and, and just ask how you can help them. How can you serve them? Um, your local police departments, I can guarantee your local police department is completely overwhelmed um, with welfare checks and um, runaways and missing, you know, other missing kids and abuse cases they are completely overwhelmed and they will welcome your help um as a plain citizen they will welcome your help uh, just just do it well um, 
not only that, you can also like, you know, sometimes you meet people in life who really, they need someone to listen. Yeah. And sometimes you can educate people one person at a time. And we have a comment. Talking about advocates needing to, I think what she's trying to talk about is the whole, like, we need to band together, stand together. Yeah. Because I think this goes back to something that um, Elam and I had talked about on one of our previous episodes where we were talking about how do we change things. And the way that we change things is by standing up together and collectively working on these issues because everybody has things that they bring to the table. Yeah. And thank you. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, uh, I got to say goodbye to all these lovely people. Unless either of you has anything else to say, I hope everybody has a good day. Thanks for listening. <laughs>